Hi, I'm Tiffany, and you are listening to the Legacy Lounge Podcast. If you are a high-achieving, mission-driven entrepreneur who wants to elevate your income, impact, and influence, you're in the right place. I left my corporate career as a creative director for Fortune 500 brands to create a legacy with my work and to support entrepreneurs to do the same. And I'm not talking about having your name on a building or statues in your image. I'm talking about leaving behind a positive impact and creating something enduring that can be passed on. You pour your time, energy, and passion into your business. So let's make sure your efforts will create a ripple effect that reaches far into the future. Each monthly series will guide you through the business, leadership, and life skills you need to successfully leave a legacy that stands the test of time. And each episode is totally valuable on its own. We are here to provide you with the tools and ideas to make massive shifts and quantum leaps in your business, transforming you from entrepreneur into legacy brand. So sit back, relax, and let's get into today's episode. Hello there and welcome to today's episode. I am super thrilled to introduce you to our incredible guest today, Deborah McDaniel. And Deborah is truly a multifaceted leader and intersectional business coach. And she's actually the COO here at Your Legacy Brand. So I'm so grateful to have her on the team and be working with her on the daily. And I found that as we move into the summer months, it really provides the best opportunity to slow down in our businesses personally and really look at some of the foundational pieces. So I believe that our team is one of the most important aspects of this foundation as we grow, because even if we have the most amazing brand, marketing systems, et cetera, we will hit roadblocks. So having a foundation will allow us to actually have a life, first of all, scale and reach our goals. So Deb and I are going to talk all about building a team, scaling a team, and I know we are going to dive into so much more. So you are in for a real treat today. So Deb, first of all, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So just so everybody listening has a little bit more sense of who you are, would you share a little bit more about your journey and really how you got to where you are now? Sure. Um, so I've been in the entrepreneurial space for three years. This is my third year. I came from corporate America. I was a project manager. I helped negotiate um, multi-million dollar contracts and oversee like collections and typically the things that people don't really enjoy doing it. And all the fun stuff. <laughs> all the fun stuff of collecting debt for people that owe money and are running from what they owe. Um, I actually loved working in collections because one of the things that I love to do is just create a really fun environment. And so bringing that to the table, building a team who actually enjoyed collecting on debt and doing it in a way that was always really compassionate and took the person into consideration. So um, I left corporate America and my first foot into entrepreneurship was I started a ghostwriting and editing agency. Um, I guess prior to that, I had been working on a book with my mom and we self-published and I kind of fell in love with the process of being behind the scenes, 
helping somebody bring their their content to life and their book to life. And I thought, you know, I'm getting pretty burnt out on project management. What's the furthest thing that I can do to just introduce some fun in my life because I was rapidly in burnout. And I thought, you know what? It was so fun helping my mom write this book. I should just put myself out there as a ghostwriter and see what happens. Um, so I made a profile on Upwork. I put myself out there. I had no experience, no audience, just a will and a dream. <laughs> and I think about four days after I like started applying for jobs, I secured my first book deal, uh, being a ghostwriter for a memoir. And it like flew by. I think about three weeks into that project, um, I got referrals from this person that I'm helping write their book. And so very rapidly, I scaled a whole business um, to the point that I had a wait list of people who needed books. And then I was getting asked to do editing jobs. And before I knew it, this idea of like, I could just do this as a hobby to have fun and like bring a little bit of fun and income into my life was like, no, we're in business. I'm exceeding what I'm making in corporate America. What is happening? I started bringing on team. I started like, how can I hold how massive this is getting? And about 11 months, I hit six figures. I had, like I said, a, a really long wait list of books. I had a wait list of editing jobs. I had a team so and awesome. I didn't hold it. <laughs> uh, so it's like, it, it sounds like such a really great story, but at this 11 month mark, when I hit six figures, I completely burned out. Mm. I burned out my business. I completely stopped doing what I was doing. And I had to look back and see like what happened because I felt so out of control in my leadership, which was so odd because in corporate America, I was a very secure leader. I had a really great relationship with my team. Um, like I knew what I was doing. And then suddenly it was like all of the rules and the lessons and the, the learnings I had in corporate America were gone. I didn't know what I was doing. I hired all the wrong people who were not prepared for their role. I was chasing them. And then I had people on my team who were doing amazing jobs, but I couldn't be available for them emotionally to get them what they needed to mm. do their role. So I'm chasing the team members that I probably shouldn't have hired. The team members that are doing a really great job are chasing me and I'm running away because like, it's just pure chaos. It, it was pure chaos. Um, and then I hit a moment where it was like, wow, I hit six figures and I feel really terrible. I don't feel good. I don't feel like I'm making an impact. I don't understand what's happening. So I shut down my ghostwriting agency. I let go of everybody. Um, and then I sat with myself. So I went from like, 16k months to like 2k months of just like residual stuff and I sat with it and I started digging into leadership and self-development and like what happened how can I like look backwards and see where where did I lose myself in this mm -hmm. um, and so to basically make an income I said maybe I should just utilize my project management skills and I really want to work behind the scenes and see how the entrepreneurs making multi six and seven and eight figures are doing things because clearly they have got it figured out and I can learn so much from them while also bringing in like what I bring to the table, project management. Um, and what I realized quickly was that they didn't know any more than me. <laughs> oh my gosh, so true. 
being yeah so like behind the scenes is so much different than surface level (laughs) it is and it was such an eye-opening experience of saying what I thought somebody reaching these levels of income had that I did it was not what it was like they are really great at bringing in money but still having the same like dynamics play out where they have team that they are trying to chase to get things done they have other team who are chasing them to try and get information there's a lot of overwhelm and so that's really what got me into where I am now as a COO and also a coach of looking at these like it's not just the systems it's not just the processes It's the dynamic between a CEO and the team. Like, how do you all communicate? Mm -hmm. And I realized there's a value system that's at play that we don't often pay attention to. We generally hire based off of skill set and talent and um, like the tangible ROI of what someone can bring. And we're not trained enough to look at the intangible of yes, this person can do a job, but are they the right fit for me and what I need in my business? And so that's where attachment style and all of that came in as I started to dig into how do you make a dynamic and high-performing team that gets the job done, but also relates really well to each other? Mm, Yeah. So, so good. Well, thank you for sharing that because I think it makes sense to hear like, and I just love, that's one of the things I love about you and the way I am too, is just being really transparent, you know, like nobody is perfect. And I think it's beautiful how you took that situation, like burnt that business down and you're like, okay, instead of like wallowing or like, oh, you know, all of that, it was like, okay, that, that obviously was not it. Let's pick up the pieces. What, what's going on here and like adjust it actually so quickly, like three years in and you're still, you know, doing amazing. And so, um, yeah, so I do want to get to like attachment styles and things like that, but before we go there, um, you know, I just wanted to talk about that a little bit more because I think that through the eyes of people who are scaling and not there yet, it appears that everybody who is making, you know, 255, you know, whatever is next on their, milestones know something that they don't and is doing something and like you said typically it's not the case and I think that not having the right team is what really can hold people back from their next levels too and I say that from experience like I'm not perfect either and so you know the back end of my you know my system it's like I'm finally at the point where and I have had like a core good team for a while but it's like always like one role that's like not work you know there's always something it feels like, or like one role. And that's where, why I really wanted to bring you on and talk about this because I think people beat themselves up and feel bad about it. So first of all, like, don't feel bad if, if you're struggling growing a team, because we're all still learning and what we've kind of figured out, like what I figured out, but then also what you brought to the table since I started figuring it out. Um, and like back to what you said is, People can interview well, they can look good on paper, but how many times do they come in and you're like, oh my gosh, like this is not working. And, and mm-hmm. it's so easy to keep somebody on for way too long. And so I've realized more than anything, it's about the energetics of the team and yeah. things are teachable. Like, yes, they have to have a basic skill set and want to do the role, but yeah. oh my gosh, the energy <laughs> means everything. 
It does. It really does. And yeah, it's just like what you were saying about like shaming ourselves when we think we're supposed to have it together. I think a lot of it, like the missing, the secret sauce, this is what I realized is that the secret sauce for somebody that's scaling is resilience. Like Mm. if you have resilience, then it's going to be impossible to navigate the like for everlasting ups and downs of running a business. And that includes like being on team because while you're finding like the dream team, you're going to go through a series of ups and downs and excitement and loss and grieving and joy. And if you don't have resilience, that's what's stalling you. It's not the team. It's not the processes. It's not the systems because there are literally people running seven figure businesses, which I know because I've been in them with a Stripe link and a Google doc. And they are making that work for them. And like, there are things that can enhance the client experience or things that can take you out of being the doer, which is also something that I really enjoy doing is like, how do we get the CEOs out of being the doer, which truly is what scaling is about. I think there's a misconception about what scaling means and everybody thinks scaling means hitting the next level, making more money. Mm -hmm. Really scaling is how do you maintain what you're doing while pulling back you and adding more of the team and the systems and the automations and processes. So like even that, like if we reframe, what does scale mean? It means maintain what you're doing, but like you, you as the CEO do less and your team gets to take on more. And then the next stage from that is, okay, how do we grow with the team handling the majority of processes? Um, But it, it just requires a lot of resilience to know that this journey is not linear. It's going to have up and downs. Like no matter what, no matter what level you're at, there's going to be ups and downs. And if you can't bounce back, cultivate um, enough resilience to just keep going, that's what stalls. So true. So yeah, I love that idea about resiliency. And then I know you and I talk a lot about like self-awareness and leadership too. So, you know, we have, I think it's, nine or 10 team members now at your legacy brand. I don't remember. I have to like look and count them all in my head, just saying it off the cuff. But, you know, as I've grown over the past few years, like about two years ago, I had nothing and it was just me and I was burning out and crazy. I probably would have done the same thing you did, but then I did start to hire, but it was not going to lie. It was pretty messy for a while trying that I had a few core people that like have, who's been with me, but like there were specific roles, like your role included, as you know, because we've had these discussions. Um, So yeah, what would you say about that? Like, so resiliency and then the leadership, because I've found that's a big key piece too. I know we've, you've shared stories with me of other, not, I don't even know who these people are specifically, but like behind the scenes of these other businesses And, and I'm not saying I'm perfect. And that's actually the best thing I think is when you're self-aware, you can admit like, okay, I'm being, I'm the problem here. I'm being the bottleneck here, you know, where I think a lot of people, that's where they end up finally fizzling out because they can't, they're not scaling and they're not growing. And they, even if it's, they hit seven figures, but eventually they're going to hit a bottleneck in that because 
they're not self-aware. Yeah. Um, so I feel like this can go in so many different directions. <laughs> of course, like emotional intelligence, emotional awareness, emotional leadership is such a core component to understanding what's happening. Because if you know yourself and you know your habits and you know your patterns and how, like, what do you do under stress, which ties into attachment theory, then you can better, like, it, it does lead to better resilience because you're able to, when you start to feel yourself spiral, you know how to pull yourself back into like a window of tolerance that you can still manage and lead and show up. And I have seen it so often where that is something that's really lacking is a level of awareness of self as the leader and also a lack of awareness of team as leaders themselves. And so if you are not aware of your patterns and what you typically do under stress, it's almost like when you're under stress, you, you just see like it, the tunnel is just very narrow. It's hard to see. It's hard to figure out and get acclimated and get your footing. But you're also expecting team to come in and show you like the path forward. And we put so much desire and need and urgency on team to like pull me out of this when it's not team's job to get you out of the state that you're in. It's yours. Mm -hmm. You are the lighthouse for your team. So if you can't be the lighthouse and you're flickering in and out, the team has no idea what's going on. <laughs> so, they're not so true. They're like, they're boats. They're trying to find you <laughs> and they can't find you. You can't find them. It just creates chaos. Yeah. So I feel like that is the perfect segue then to talk about attachment styles. Cause this is one thing, um, that I feel like has really changed kind of hiring the pat, like the final few roles that we really needed. And I think we're almost there getting it right. And, um, part of that is the attachment style. And I think like you just said, it's so important for everybody on the team. Well, specifically like the C CEOs or COO or both, um, but then to know what attachment styles the team has so you know how to respond to them and yourself. Because like you said, when you go into stress, so I'll let you explain it, but it gets me so excited because um, like even knowing my own and knowing yours, it's like, oh, okay. Like now I know how we can navigate better when things are a little chaotic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, for sure. So I started learning about attachment theory about a year ago, and it completely changed the way that I look at myself, the way I look at clients, the way I look at teams, um, because attachment theory is based off of like the connection and the relationships we hold with, um, generally they talk about attachment styles in intimate relationships when you're dating or when you're getting married, how to navigate communicating your needs to your spouse. And I realized like the same dynamic is playing out. It's really any relationship. It's your relationship with your business. It's a relationship with your team. It's the relationship to your clients. In each of those roles, we typically will have an attachment style that triggers or activates when we're under stress or we're feeling overwhelmed. This is like, it's that um, body response, like fight or flight. 
Mm-hmm. And then what happens when our body goes into fight mode? What happens when our body goes into flight mode? What happens when our body goes into freeze mode? And so the, the premise of attachment theory is that in um, around World War II, there was a psychologist named John Bowlby who did a study about infants who were having to be separated from their parents because their parents were going to war or, you know, women for the first time having to go to work mm-hmm. and basically analyzing like, what are the infants doing when they are separated from their caregivers? There's a lot of distress. There's a lot of anxiety. And he started doing a lot of research and saying that these were instinctual survival mechanisms. A high level of distress was not really like distress. It's a body response to, I feel like I'm at risk. My safety is being taken um, advantage of and I'm losing it. And so he said that these same patterns could probably be tracked through adulthood and the same infants, how they responded to losing or perceived loss of their caregiver could also be tracked to how they perceive loss as adults. Mm -hmm. Um, And then his colleague, her name is Mary Ainsworth in the seventies, she kind of took that idea and played around with different ideas. So she had an experiment that's called the strange situation where she took a group of toddlers and their mothers and put them in a laboratory and over a couple hours she would basically review so there would be a mother and a toddler in a room they would be playing and then she would have the mother leave for a set period of time and see how the child responded do they um like ramp up as in their fight mode kicks in and they're crying and they're throwing tantrums until the mother comes back or do they ramp down and they detach and um through this experiment and then introducing a stranger into the room and having the mother leave and seeing how the child responded to an unfamiliar person in their surroundings, Mary Ainsworth determined that there are four primary attachment styles that were separated into two buckets. So you have a secure attachment as in the child had formed a strong enough connection with their caregiver that they weren't really like they they felt loss when the mother left, but they didn't completely fall out. They had hope that their mother was coming back. There was trust there. Um, when there was a stranger around, there was trust that inherently nothing's wrong. They they had a high level of resilience. Um, and then there were infants who were profiled as insecure attached. And in insecure, you have anxious, avoidant, and then you have disorganized, which is a combination of the two. Anxious children really did believe like if my mother's gone, she's gone for good. I'm being abandoned. They would have high levels of distress, cry, throw tantrums, um, not easily soothed when the mother came back. Like it, it took a while to bounce back. The other children had more avoidant tendencies where they barely acknowledged that their mother left because the attachment had not been formed and that child had not felt like I can rely on this person. Like this person's going to come and go. I just have to, I'm here by myself. When the mother came back, they really didn't acknowledge their mother. Um, There were other children who did both. So they would throw a tantrum. They would fall out when their mother came back and tried to soothe them. They would be defiant and detach. And so that's how Mary Ainsworth prototyped this or profiled these attachment styles. And she said the same thing, 
depending on how you formed an attachment bond with your caregiver, depended on how or resulted in how you attach to everything else in your life, including your intimate relationships. And so as adults, it's the same thing. So if you have an anxious attached pattern, it can feel like when you're overwhelmed, there is a core fear of being abandoned or being left behind. So everything that somebody that has an, an anxious attached pattern does is to mitigate the perceived loss of a relationship. They ramp up. They start to, as a leader, this looks like micromanaging the team because it feels like things are getting out of control and you might be losing something. So it looks like micromanagement. It looks like increased communication to try and like check in and make sure all the things are getting done. Um, avoidant adults do the opposite. They really love freedom. They under stress will feel like they are losing their ability to have choice and freedom. And so everything they do is to create space for themselves to regain the sense of choice and option and freedom. So this looks like completely checking out as a CEO from team when you're under stress you don't communicate, you don't check in, you try and separate yourself from your team and from your business to regain a sense of choice so that you can access resiliency. Um, disorganized is, as a CEO, this looks like wanting to check in and increase and have like lots of communication. This looks like really micromanaging but then also getting overwhelmed by what you've asked for and running away when the team tries to get your attention. <laughs> so when I realized that, of course, going through like my own journey, I realized that I'm avoidant. And when I'm under stress, I can easily kick into an avoidant attached pattern of I need to disconnect. I need to get myself space. I need to retreat inward versus going outward. It's very much like a flight response of, I'm going to go inward. I'm going to internalize and think through. I don't want to communicate. Um, and so knowing myself, it makes me better to understand like, when am I at the threshold that this pattern might kick in? And what is my plan to get myself out of it before I let it take over and basically like, create conflict with me and my team. And so that's what you and I have talked about a lot as well is like, okay, I, I know your attachment pattern leans toward the anxious side when you're under stress. Um, so if I know you're under stress and that your anxious attached pattern comes in, my avoidant pattern can kick in and be like, nope, I got to run away. So how do I meet myself so that I can be there for you and not create an increased response from you as you're trying to get a grip of what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, and so that I think is the most helpful that I use it with my clients and also like my coaching clients too. Yeah, I find it so intriguing. I, and I had heard about it before, like with the children, but not applied, you know, to team and business and, and those things. And so it makes so much sense because same thing, like, I tend to be fairly even keel and attached, like in general, like, like streamlined, but yeah, if things start going crazy, I lean on the anxious side and then you're the, so it's, it's same for me. I know like, okay, if Deb is like the avoidant, then I don't want to like go all crazy and be, the thing, you know, like with all the messages 
at too much, you know, and, and so, but it's also so interesting to see in um, not only just team, but clients as well, you know, like we've noticed, and it doesn't happen super often. And usually, and I've learned to mitigate it as well, as far as like, okay, I see this person starting to be avoidant. Let me like reel them back in because it's nobody's fault. It's not like they're no, like nobody's bad for being one of these things. It just is what it is. So it's like, but they don't realize it. So, okay, you're starting to ghost a little bit. Let me reach out. Let me, you know, make sure that you know that everything's fine. Or the other way, they're starting to check in every five minutes and be anxious. And it's like, okay, let's slow the roll. Let's see what's at the root here. So it's, it's been so helpful. And then also to just to know, like, we had one team member actually fairly recently um, that we hired and it was just not a good fit. And all of a sudden they just kind of like started disappearing. We're like, where did this person go? Like, you know, and it was very obvious avoidant and, you know, sometimes it's just not worth trying to figure it out. And it's like, okay, bless and release. um, If this person is just going to be in stress in that way. (laughs) Exactly. And I think that's the critical point is we can, we want to have compassion for the things that we do. Like I always say, humans are going to human. Like we just, when we're under stress, our bodies are going to do what comes natural to us to help us like to help mitigate that stress and bring us down into a range that we can tolerate life. And also when you're a CEO, you have a business to run. So it looks different. Like, for example, someone like me, like I have an avoidant pattern And I also am aware, and this goes back to like emotional leadership and emotional awareness. I can tell when I'm starting to get overwhelmed and I will speak up. If I'm noticing something that is potentially concerning to me, I'm going to say something, which appears to be anti my attachment style, but it's really, I just have a very fast um, capacity for resilience. Like I can bounce back pretty fast. I can work through my things. If you have someone who is unaware that they're doing this pattern, you really can't take time bringing this to their awareness. It's literally as a CEO, you have to manage your team and you have to manage you. And if they don't have a handle on resilience, I think that's like the number one core quality is like resilience out of everything else. If you are resilient, everything else is figure outable. You can- you can mess up, you can try things, you can have mistakes, but as long as you have resilience, like the team will survive, the business will survive, the clients will be okay. Um, If you don't have resilience and you are overwhelmed, we as CEOs will try and I think this is so common of like, how much grace do I give this person? How much understanding do I give this person? And I know that they're a great person but they're not doing their role. And this is where that values comes in of if you know that under stress, you need communication and you have somebody that is actively running away from you, trying to communicate, if they perceive you're coming after them and they're strong avoidant running away, you can't spend your time chasing them. Like that was a huge lesson I had to learn in my ghostwriting agency was most of my energy was chasing people who were running away from me. And I didn't have anything left for the people that were actually doing great and needed my attention because mm-hmm. I had spent like, I, it's the anxious avoidant trap of you're trying to get something done. You're trying to make sure that the relationship is salvageable and that like things are okay. And you have somebody that's actively trying to ghost you 
because your anxiety is triggering their avoidance. <laughs> and so they're running like, and you're trying to chase them to salvage this. And the people that actually are secure and need you don't get anything that's left. And that's what creates a really toxic team dynamic because you have people that aren't getting their needs met now. You're not getting your needs met. There's another person who's like definitely not getting their needs met <laughs> and nobody's talking to each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I hope this is helpful for all of you listening. And um, it's really been fun. Like I look at it almost as an experiment now, you know, within the team, but also like within myself and you know, clients too, like I, I don't take it as personal, not that it happened often, but branding is a very deep process and it can be a little bit triggering for people sometimes, um, for various reasons, mindset. And, um, so when people would sort of ghost once in a while, I was like, what's wrong? Why don't they like me? You know, like running through the things in my head. And now I'm just like, oh, they're running an avoidant pattern. And so I need to like do my best to chase them. That's my ownership as, you know, a business owner and somebody paid me to do the work. And if they literally are going to avoid this completely, then ultimately it's up to them. So it's just like you said, so good for, I mean, you know, thinking about our children and our spouses and we could go on for that forever. <laughs> but I do want to get into, um, I mean, I think we could probably talk for like five hours straight about all the things. <laughs> Uh, but today specifically, I really want to talk about the team. And another thing that um, has been always been super important to me, and, and this isn't even just in business, like personally, I don't talk about it a lot and I don't, you know, shine a light on it. But like even I specifically attend a very diverse church because where I live isn't super diverse and it's important um, that we raise, you know, our daughters in that way. And um I really had been wanting to grow the team, you know, in a more diverse way. And it was just like so perfect that I had met you <laughs> um, as a woman of color, but completely like you were working for a client, like helping a client of mine and I was helping that client. And then we met and then I was like, oh, Deb, I don't know. I just knew immediately somehow, like once we got working together, I'm like, I need to work with Deb. So I was just so grateful because, um, you know, like I could do as much as I could with intentionally being diverse, but I didn't want it to be like forced or, you know, like baked or for the, the sake of the visual of it. Like I wanted it to be really organic and be that way. And so I feel like we've really achieved that on the team, which is amazing. Although we're pretty much all women, which I'm okay with it. <laughs> <laughs> I love having a strong, powerful, diverse women run team, but also, you know, as I grow the business and bring on more clients and we do the branding work, but we also have the women's networking um, group, the collective, you know, you and I have had more and more conversations about this, which, um, you know, can be tricky, a tricky subject to talk about. And some people are all in it and some people want to avoid it. So, you know, as a woman of color specifically, I know that you like coach a lot of women of color specifically because um, that's a whole nother level on trying, you know, on being an entrepreneur. So I just wanted to talk about that a little bit and like, what are your thoughts around, you know, if somebody else, like I 
have been is wanting to really have a diverse team specifically, but also just be like more diverse and equitable in their business. Um, like what would you recommend and what do you see happening on the business front in that area? Oh, this is such a juicy topic. Um, first of all, as a woman of color, there, like, it's like you said, there's another layer. And I think as any marginalized person, like women inherently, we are a marginalized class. Right. To start out with. (laughs) Yeah. Like, but then when you get into like, I am a woman of color. I am in a plus size body. I, this is where like intersectionality exists of what are the, the trials and tribulations of being marginalized, but what are the trials and tribulations of being marginalized in a number of overlapping ways? And Mm -hmm. how does that impact your ability to be resilient? Like that is really where like this exists is what I've noticed is, first of all, there is a big shift towards a lot of women, white women wanting to be diverse and wanting to be inclusive and not knowing like what's the right way and what's the quote unquote wrong way. Mm-hmm. And to that, I say like the, the only thing that can be wrong is if you don't try. <laughs> like, if you don't try or you're doing it for the wrong reasons, just like for the wrong reasons. Yes. Exactly. Um, I was having a conversation with my OBM, Keisha, who is also a woman of color. And we talked about um, the difference between diversity and inclusion and how you cannot have one without the other. So a lot of people think, how do I have diversity on my team? Well, I've got like, for example, in your legacy brand, there is so much diversity. Like there's me, there's you, we have team members in the Philippines, we have team members in Mexico, we have like it's so diverse where things fall short is not in your team but just in general it's how do you make this feel like an inclusive space for those people so yes you open your doors and even as a business owner you create a container that's diverse and you can have all the diversity that you want but if you don't have inclusive practices that make these people feel psychologically and socially safe to share their opinions, you mm-hmm. don't really have diversity. You have performance. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I think is lacking is there is a misunderstanding with what does it mean to be inclusive and how can I be inclusive? It's not enough for me to open my space to diverse experiences and diverse people but how do I create an environment that is safe enough for them to share their diverse experiences and not feel like they're going to have a repercussion? Mm-hmm. Um, if you are coaching women of color or another marginalized group or an intersectional group, how do you make sure that your container is safe for them to express the deep shit that has to be expressed for them to be able to get to a place of safety and resilience. If you're not doing that, if you're not taking care and attention to figure out and ask the questions of how do I make this a safe space for you? How do we support you so that you thrive and you feel like an equitable equitable part of our team, for example, like how do we get you to use your voice so that we really can take the actions that we need to take? if you don't know that and you're not being intentional about cultivating that, you're not doing any good because they're taking up the space, but they're not getting anything out of it. 
-hmm. and it creates that really odd power dynamic of I'm a I'm I'm in this but I don't feel safe to be me so now I have to mask to exist yeah wow that is so powerful well and it makes me think of too like a lot of times you know in all all of us we don't know what we don't know and so you know, just being really vulnerable, creating the collective that I created. And then I was, and I was talking to you and I was like, gosh, I just really want this to be more diverse, really from like a heart led space. And we were talking about it and I'm so excited to announce that you're going to be kind of coming in and leading a BIPOC specific, like interest group specifically for that reason. Like, you know, um, I can show up as a leader and I think that we all can learn together and it's, and it's, not at all the Tiffany show, like the whole point of the group is a true mastermind where women support women. But that was kind of a thing at first that was lacking of like this space, safe space, like you were talking about, because I admit it, like I can't provide that solely because I don't have that same experience. Yes, I'm a woman, but I, you know, I'm a white woman. So I think that's so smart. Um, And just like, like you said, what most people aren't thinking of or realizing of like, if you can't provide it, then it needs to be sometimes a team effort to make sure that everybody feels seen and heard and valued and able to speak their truth and X, Y, Z. So I'm really excited for when we kick that off. Yes, same. Well, and I wasn't even really planning on going into that. But by the way, if you're listening, um, we have typically bi-monthly like mixers, basically. They're networking mixers for women of all colors, all business types, business sizes. And we get together. We do a lot of breakout rooms. It's a really amazing place um, to come hang out with Deb and I, but also um, my clients come, my colleagues often come. Last time we had over 50 women um, and really to create that space and dive in and talk about these topics and also have fun and celebrate because we don't do that enough as women business owners either. Um, So if that's something that you're looking for is like a a really amazing community. I invite you. We'll put the link below um, this episode and come hang out with us. We have we have one um, probably coming up in the next few weeks. If you're whenever you listen to this, we're going to have them fairly often. So would love love to see you there. Um, all right, anything on that topic that you want to add before we move on, Deb? Because I want to make sure that we cover all all the things. No, I, uh, I think you covered everything. I attended the last networking mixer because again, like we just launched this. It was so much fun to be a part of the container and just like a really, really fun experience. So yeah, I'm looking forward to the next one. Okay. Same. All right. Well, um, again, I'll have, we'll have to do this again sometime because I feel like I could just keep talking, but I won't. (laughs) (laughs) but there always are a few questions to ask at the end of these episodes. So, you know, I have to ask about legacy because that's all about what we're doing. What does legacy mean to you and why is it so important? Mm, Legacy means to me, um, I think like the ripple effect that we put out, like whatever action, whatever thing I'm doing, 
how am I going to be creating an impact to those around me? And even to my children, like I think about how am I showing my children that they can think outside of the box and they can go for whatever it is that they want um, while also navigating like life's ups and downs. I love that. Speaking of all of the resiliency, like imagine if you were taught that, which we have now the ability to teach our children that resiliency and not have to figure it out later in life. Right. <laughs> Uh, and then very last question, what are you most excited and proud about creating or doing that will stand the test of time and um, not only like leave your legacy behind, but I like to talk about living our legacies now. Yeah. Um, okay. So I think first off, I think it's the work that I do with CEOs and teams. I think that in itself leaves a lasting legacy because once you are able to bring to light some of these concepts, like it forever changes the way you interact with not just team, but clients and all of the things. So I think that is, I think one of the things I'm really most passionate and fulfilled by. Um, secondly, I think it's showing other marginalized women, intersectional identity women, that you can pivot as much as you need, like how to cultivate resilience so that no matter what you do, you're always going to find your footing. I think that is also where I find myself most fulfilled. Mm, so, so good. Amazing. So ladies, if you want to follow Deb, um, Deborah, I, but I call her Deb, so you can call her either one. It's Deborah.joy.mcdaniel on Instagram. We will link to that below the show notes as in the show notes as well. Or like we talked about, come hang out with us at the next uh, networking mixer. Um, also, if you're curious and you just want to check out the team at your legacy brand, now that we've talked about how we work together and the rest of the team, go to yourlegacybrand.com and we have a team page there kind of showcasing um, all the amazing powerhouse women on the team and one man that steps in from time to time. <laughs> um, and to wrap up today, remember, if you're not consciously building a legacy, you're simply building a brand unconsciously. I hope this discussion with Deborah inspired you to take action and really take a look at your team or taught you if you haven't even built a team yet, you have learned so many nuggets, so many mic drop moments today that you can take along and maybe start out fresh building a team, um, you know, already knowing these things. And that will simply help move the needle 1% of the direction of your legacy, because if we all focus on making an impact, the ripple effect we have together can truly make a difference. So Deborah, thank you again so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was so good. Awesome. And we'll see you next time. I'll see you here next time in the Legacy Lounge. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening to the Legacy Lounge podcast. Connect with me on Instagram at Tiffany Newman Creative. I would also love to hear your feedback to see what resonates with you and what you'd like to hear in the future. If you love this episode, please provide a review and we will be forever grateful. You can always find links and resources shared on the show by going to yourlegacybrand.com. 
Remember, what you leave behind is not what is engraved in stone monuments, but what is woven into the lives of others. What are you doing today to pour into others and to leave your legacy?